Hello and welcome. You're listening to Where Power Lies, a podcast produced by Open Ownership with me, Bridie Addison Child. In the first episode, we looked at how the Panama Papers helped reveal the owners of dodgy shell companies operating in the world of offshore finance. We found links to 72 current or former heads of state. Identifying these individuals known as beneficial owners is how we answer questions about where power really lies in our world. It is one key step forward in tackling crime, corruption, and, well, a litany of other bad things that shell companies can facilitate. Behind the invoices, emails, and paper trails, arms deals, tax evasion, and drug trafficking. But what kind of system are these individuals, these beneficial owners, operating in? Where did that system come from? And who else is part of it? That's what we'll be looking at today, in this episode of Where Power Lies. I mean, there are a lot of folks out there who see what's happening and are angry at BP. It's not an exotic part of the world. It's not an aberration. It's the way business is run. This is a lot of money that we're talking. Let's start by pointing out that the systems of offshore finance depend upon a number of very small jurisdictions. You have, for example, San Marino, a landlocked microstate in Italy. It's just 23 square miles, about the size of Manhattan, and makes a lot of its money from rare collected postage stamps and coins. It's one of only two countries in Europe, Serbia being the other that allows Chinese citizens to visit without a visa, and it's also one of the wealthiest countries in the world in terms of GDP per capita. San Marino is, in the simplest terms, a tax haven. When I began to look at these countries, the first data I came across was that about half of the global money, stock of money, seems to go through these jurisdictions called tax havens. This was really a moment of reflection. My name is Ronen Talan. I'm a professor of international political economy at City University London. Ronan Palan was working as a lecturer in international relations when he began to apply questions about theories of the state, which were normally only asked of a few countries, Britain, France, the US and so on, to smaller places like San Marino. I asked myself, what do they tell us about modern power and the modern state systems? I understood that the money that goes through this jurisdiction was in a sense fake. It was um, phantom money. Because people think of money, tend to think of money as a thing. And money is not a thing. So you cannot go to Cayman Island and find a huge hall where there's a lot of money. <laughs> and money is not moving around the world in the sense that it used to. You know, in the 18th century, money was moving around in ships. Days, basically, money represents claim or property rights. And these claims are registered in location. That's all the only what we mean by that. At the same time, I ask myself, why is it that the modern world economy has developed or require this particular formation? Why it has to work itself through islands uh, located in various um, exotic places? What's going on, essentially? And that was what got me interested in this field. The conventional answer to this question of why we're funneling half the world's economy through treasure islands and microstates that make their money from stamps with giraffes on them is that tax havens just arose in response to rising taxation. That is, after the Second World War, 
and during the subsequent decades, tax went up. Companies then tried to find a way to avoid paying that tax and countries like San Marino saw an opportunity and responded, creating low tax systems to attract foreign capital. Simple, right? But Ronan was not wholly convinced. I tend to be quite cynical in my view of how government operates. The ability of governments to think holistically, uh, to strategize. I think governments are, some governments are good at reacting, knee-jerk reaction, but to develop a whole system of regulation, taxation, incorporation rules and the like that attract businesses, I couldn't see how particularly small jurisdiction would come up with this system. And so just the kind of the original assumption that tax haven emerged simply because there was a rise in taxation didn't make sense to me. It didn't make sense to me how countries like Bermuda or Cayman can develop a very complex system. Ronan Palan has a different theory about how the systems of the offshore world came to be. And like most ideas, it is best illustrated by example. So let's go on a little journey back to the middle of the 20th century to a man called Aristotle Onassis. Aristotle Onassis was a Greek shipping magnate. He was born in 1906 and amassed the world's largest privately owned shipping fleet. He was extremely rich and extremely famous. He was actually married to Jackie Kennedy, as in the widow of JF Kennedy. Now, if you have a merchant ship, you're required by international law to be registered in a certain country. And these ship registries help regulate safety standards and taxes and so on. But, and here's where the dodgy bit comes in, you don't actually have to register your ship in the country that you're from or even where you operate from. Onassis discovered this, that he could register his ships in Panama. And that meant that he could sail his ships under Panamanian flags which freed him from European labour laws and allowed him to sail at low cost and tax-free. This is a practice now known as flying a flag of convenience and it's often available in tax havens like Panama or the Marshall Islands. And the rules that allowed Onassis to do this were there from 1880. They were created as part of Panama's secession from Colombia. Not to lure rich men into flouting labour laws, not that is as part of a specially designed business plan to make Panama money. Over his life, Anassis accumulated a net worth of $500 million. And a large part of his success came from the fact that flying a flag of convenience allowed him to disregard the majority of international shipping standards, which meant he could run his ships on the cheap. In 1970, for example, one of his tankers, SS Arrow, ran aground in Nova Scotia and poured oil into the sea. This, by the way, is still the largest oil spill ever to have happened off Canada's east coast. An inquiry into the incident found that almost all of the Arrow's navigational equipment was damaged or defunct, and that none of the crew had any navigational skills, except the master and, quote, there are even doubts about his ability. The point here is that Anassis was an individual who discovered a strange little loophole and took advantage of it. And that choice reverberates into our present day. I find that in many aspects of tax havens, or what we today we call tax havens, they, they contain many, many different set of rules about incorporation, about secrecy, about 
finance, and so on and so forth. And each of these rules developed historically in different countries for reasons that had nothing to do with tax havens. It was only once the rules were there, sometimes 10, 20, sometimes 40, 50 years later, somebody discovered the rule and took advantage of it. The gusher unleashed in the Gulf of Mexico continues to spew crude oil. There are no reliable estimates of how much oil is pouring into the Gulf, but it comes to many millions of gallons since the catastrophic blowout. Eleven men were killed in the explosions that sank one of the most sophisticated drilling rigs in the world, the Deepwater Horizon. You might remember the explosion on the BP oil rig Deepwater Horizon. That explosion killed 11 workers and created a five-mile-long oil slick that caused widespread environmental chaos, the largest oil spill in American history, actually. Larry, it really is a mess today because the winds shifted direction. They're now out of the southeast, blowing this oil, this sludge, into the bayous of southeastern Louisiana. Well south of Deepwater Horizon, like the ships of Aristotle Onassis, was operating under a flag of convenience. And there's quite a bit written, particularly by the journalist Khadija Sharif, about how this flag of convenience encouraged lax regulations on the oil rig, which contributed to the disaster. I mean, there are a lot of folks out there who see what's happening and are angry at BP, are frustrated that it hasn't stopped. What we need is actions that make sure that BP is being held accountable. The system we have now is not inevitable or the way that things have always been. It is a result of the powerful actively looking to squirrel away money in whatever way possible, even when that's dangerous or illegal or avoiding tax or going to mean that you spill oil into the ocean. This is going to be hard, not just right now, it's going to be hard for months to come. The Gulf is going to be affected in a bad way. And this is what I go to bed at night thinking about, the spill. When, when we are fouling the earth like this, it has concrete implications, not just for this generation, but for future generations. And remember that flags of convenience are only one small niche policy in this offshore world. According to Ronan, this origin story repeats over and over in various ways, landing us at our current system. A patchwork quilt of pre-existing rules and regulations stumbled upon and taken advantage of over decades like a huge interlinking set of historic loopholes. And that set of loopholes intersects in almost every way imaginable with every one of our economic and social issues, one of them in this case being climate change. Producing this section on Deepwater Horizon actually reminded me of something that the journalist Frederick Obermeyer said when we interviewed him for our first episode. I think nearly every problem and crisis we are currently facing in this world does at a certain point touch this topic. I try to argue that those jurisdictions, which we tend to think as very marginal, that they are very central, they are part of, they form a systemic relationship with each other and with the main uh, industrial area, and hence, Today, the modern world economy is operating partly through an offshore world, okay? So this systemic relationship with offshore world, mm. by which I meant you've got huge financial centers, the largest today's Wall Street, 
But until very recently, until the Brexit vote, I would say the largest international financial center was London. So you've got a place like London, a huge financial center in the world. A lot of the activities, the businesses that are being developed and um, nurtured in London would then be signed off, registered in the Cayman Island or in Bermuda. So in that sense, the offshore world, to my mind, is incorporated into the way business is running. That's what I'm trying to say. It's not an exotic part of the world. It's not an aberration. It's the way business is run. So the system of the offshore world is not what we might think of as offshore. It is central to our economy. Have you eaten a banana recently? Because there's one route that that banana took to you. From being picked in, for example, Honduras by a local employed by a big multinational, then shipped to the UK and then sold on to the supermarket and then to you. Unexpected item in bagging area. But the profits and money associated with that little banana went on a much more roundabout route. It went via paper trails manipulated by accountants, shifting profits to sit wherever it was most convenient or what they would call tax efficient. And this might seem legitimate, you know, just part of big business, but well, surprise, it often isn't. Because in big multinational corporations operating across borders, like some well-known banana brands who I won't name because I don't want to get in trouble with the big banana boys, they engage in all kinds of shady tactics via offshore. One example is what's called, quite dryly, transfer mispricing. Fundamentally, this means that they shift profits out of high-tax countries into low-tax countries. So the big banana boys can be employing people all over the world and selling bananas all over the world, but register all their profits in, for example, Bermuda, which has a corporate tax rate of 0%. And they might do this even if Bermuda is the only place they don't actually sell their bananas, even if the only presence they have in Bermuda is a postal address, not even a building, but a PO box. In other words, even if all that sits in Bermuda is a big banana boy shell company. So when we think about the offshore world, in the context of the Panama Papers, perhaps, or wealthy individuals, we might think of it as being only about rich individuals squirrelling piles of gold on islands. But offshore is much more far-reaching than that, because it is fundamentally about this ability to artificially manipulate paper trails of money across borders. I understood that the money that goes through this jurisdiction was, in a sense, fake. It was um, phantom money. And again, it's not just the big banana boys doing this. It's present in almost everything around us. The clothes you're wearing, the phone or radio you're listening to this on, the coffee you drank this morning, all these things have two different lives. One is their physical existence, their journey from manufacture to you. And one is the profits that those goods generate, which often meander their way through the alternative universe of what the journalist Oliver Bullough calls Moneyland. Please take your change. Notes are dispensed below the scanner. I just did a, a recent study of the largest 100 non-financial corporation in the world. And on average, they have about 700 subsidiaries, each one. 
what we tend to find is about 8% of those 700 on average are located in offshore financial centers. So if the offshore world is so common, so central to our lives, is that so bad? I mean, maybe that's just the way it is. Rich people are going to be rich. You might be thinking, but this is just what it means to be tax efficient. But I think when we use the word efficient, it needs to be followed by the question, for who is this efficient? Because nobody is making a cheaper or better banana here. What is happening is just a huge transfer of wealth. You might think all that extra money that the big banana boys save gets invested in productive areas of the economy. But actually, a lot of it gets spent in financial institutions, not investing in better bananas, but creating new schemes to avoid more tax. Later in the series, we'll be looking at the big scale inequality inherent in this system. How money is moving from poorer countries to richer countries, from people of colour to white people, and from women to men on an industrial scale. This is about structural power, and it is radically inefficient when you look at the system as a whole. But for now, let's focus on another, maybe slightly more fun question, which is, how easy is it to do all of this? Because if offshore is so central to our economy, you might be thinking, Bridie, you should start rooting all of your hefty podcasting profits via the Netherlands. Oh, how hard is it to set up a shell company? Um, well, the bad news is that <laughs> it's really easy to set up a shell company. I could go online today, um, pay probably just a few hundred dollars, and uh, buy a company based in any region of the world um, off the shelf. That's Louise Russell Bravata, Atlantic Fellow at the LSE Inequalities Institute. You might remember her from last episode. Now, although creating a shell company is easy, that's very different to operating in the offshore system efficiently. And again, when I say efficiently, I actually mean to hide as much wealth as possible. Here's Tom my co-host and the director of Open Ownership in the interview with Ronan. What's the barrier to entry uh, for someone that wishes to start to take advantage of the kinds of things you're describing? Can anyone do this? In principle, yes. In practice, there's a cost attached to it. And unless you want to be caught, you really need to take advantage of the best lawyers and accountants. The offshore world as such, one of the disadvantages is that once you do manage to move your assets, say, to Switzerland, well, Swiss banks don't really pay much in interest, okay? So it's not very, very valuable. So if you manage to kind of um, squeeze £1,000 to Switzerland, well, you get so little interest. It's really not worth it. It's becoming economically viable probably to use the offshore world today. For individual, I would say... 20, 30 million dollars, that's becoming serious. If it wasn't obvious by now, the people benefiting from this system are very, very rich. Ultra high net worth individuals are people with over 30 million dollars in net assets. They represent 0.01% of the population of advanced economies. And this makes their use of the offshore world one of the core drivers of global wealth inequality. Having an understanding of just the intense economic inequality globally 
the number of high net worths uh, or the amount of wealth rather that high net worth individuals had has grown um, like 10% over, for example, the course of one year in 2017. This is, this is a lot of money that we're talking. I was talking to Tom about all this one day and I asked him, okay, okay, but what, what I'm interested in, right, is like, what is it about this for you that makes you want to work in this space? Like, what kind of world do you want to create and be living in? I guess that the, the sort of the core of this for me is in highly developed societies of, of the ones that we live in, with a, an incredibly complex set of law which governs a very complex marketplace, which allows us to be enjoying physical and digital goods and services from all around the world. I'm sat here at a desk with products from China and the US and Malaysia and France and Germany and all the rest of it. The, the only way that that incredibly complex edifice, which supplies us with all of these things that we like to have as people works, is that there are some rules, whether they're standards about, you know, the electricity that you need to use to make a TV work or food standards or whatever else it is. Those are the things that make a very, very complex society work. It, it cannot be the case that through kind of being able to access a really smart lawyer or throw a load of money in an accountant or a professional services firm, you grant yourself the ability to subvert the rules by which everybody else has to live and thereby effectively steal money from everybody else who's contributing. And as we face a pandemic, as we face massive economic losses around the world, really, really challenging public health questions that are, you know, forcing citizens to be asked to stay indoors and not go out and, you know, change their lives radically to to kind of fight this. We are going to need all the money we, we can as societies to overcome that. And if if people continue to steal it at the rate that they do, there is just going to be less for everybody. I mentioned the journalist Oliver Bullo earlier and how he calls the offshore system Moneyland. In his book of the same name, he says, it is a virtual space that is far greater than the sum of its parts. The laws of Moneyland are whichever laws anywhere are most suited to those wealthy enough to afford them at any moment in time. If the wealthy can continue to dodge taxes as they do now, the divide between those who own assets and those who don't will only expand. And in fact, wealth inequality is increasing. In the 10 years after 2000, the richest 1% of the world's population increased their wealth from a third of the wealth in the world to half of the wealth in the world. Of everything. 1% own half of everything. So what can we do in the face of this? A more transparent system would be a start, and beneficial ownership transparency, a simple policy that we talked about last episode, which is where it becomes law to disclose who owns what shell companies, would be a step in the right direction on this. Here's Louise again. Beneficial ownership transparency is not going to solve wealth inequality, but it's hard to think about wealth inequality being substantively improved if people don't even know how bad it is at the moment. And we should add to that that without transparency, effective taxation is impossible because it's impossible to know who owns what. As the journalist and writer Nicholas Jackson says, 
A fundamental building block of modern economic theory is transparency. The offshore world is the opposite of transparent. And there's something else that it's important to talk about here, which is that the majority of the world do not live in this globalized society. Most people do not live in a world where you tap a button and a parcel arrives the next day containing products manufactured far away. And it's especially those people who are losing out in this ever-growing storm of offshore. The point in all of this is, it isn't just important that me, someone that lives in a highly developed economy, it isn't just important that I can find out who ultimately owns and controls a company. Wherever you live, the macro forces that act in the world, your government is still trading with lots of other countries of the world. And of course, it's the elites in your country who are able to access an international financial system. They are able to access that. And it's through those mechanisms that they are able to take money, be it through public procurement or through avoiding tax, and move that out of where they live and where you live and put it somewhere else for their own benefit. Because if you're not engaging in that global market, there will be a great deal of people in your country that are, and they will typically be the wealthy, the elite. And it's through that channel that money is taken from those countries and stored offshore. It's easy to think of the super wealthy as the sole drivers of the system, the fuel that makes the machine run. But they are also constantly interacting with and working with a number of other people in order to operate efficiently. Thousands of cogs operating in a giant machine. Next time, we'll be looking at who these other players are and how they operate in the system of offshore. But they can even pick and choose from legal systems around the world to put together their transactions to a point where one has to ask the question how much this is still compatible with our idea of democratic self-governance. Part of their job is to work within the rules, as they say. We will take advantage of them for our clients. It's the way we make our money. They're not entirely happy about it, majority they come across, but they do that. That's part of their jobs. Some of the examples in this episode were drawn from Nicholas Shackson's brilliant book, Treasure Islands, and other resources, including stuff by the other writers referenced in this episode, can be found in the show notes, along with a transcript. Thanks for listening to this episode of Where Power Lies, which is produced for open ownership by me, Bridie Addison-Child, with additional production by Victor Ponsford, and co-hosting by Tom Townsend. Our artwork is by Georgia Latham. Thanks for listening. <laughs>